I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're 6'1"? Yeah, six, well, six one and a half. So I'll grab everything on the bottom shelf, and you get everything on the top shelf. Oh okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No step ladders needed here. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. I'm Evelyn and this is Reppin. Families can be complicated. My next guest is on The CW's Family Law, a legal drama and comedy series that follows a dysfunctional family law firm working to help other families with their own dysfunctions. My guest stars as Daniel Svensson, the son of Henry Svensson, the father and owner of Svensson & Associates, played by the one and only Victor Garber. The show has quickly become a fan favorite in Brazil, Italy, Australia, and South Africa, and it's recently started airing in the States. My guest has also appeared in CTV's Cardinal, Amazon's The Expanse, and Miss Sloan with Jessica Chastain. Today, we're going to sit down and meet with this talented actor who shares what he's learned after he and his family fight through some life-threatening illnesses and how those experiences have shaped his perspective and life. So sit on down and meet Zach Smedu. Zach, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing up in Canada? I am having the time of my life. Canada is a beautiful place. 
beautiful country, beautiful people, as you know, many of them, as chat with some. Mm-hmm. All things considered, I feel very blessed. Thank you. Congratulations on Family Law. It's a great show with Victor Garber. I mean, hello. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and the show has so many great notes to it. For me, the show feels more like a real family because it does have those notes of dysfunction. Oh. But with any family, <laughs> just going to say I can relate completely. I don't know one family that is normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone's got things going on. But with a family, it's also got notes of tenderness and heart and care and humor. Tell me a little bit about Family Law, your character, Daniel, what the premise of the show is, because I know it's airing all over the world, but of course, the United States is a few years behind. <laughs> a bit you got a lot of stuff going on, you know, just getting caught up. We do, we do. Family Law, as you mentioned, is a procedural law show mixed with a very quirky, fun, family, dysfunctional drama comedy. Mm-hmm. So it really does take place in both of those worlds. My character, Daniel, is the son of Victor the other character, Harry Spenson, who's a very prolific and famous lawyer in Canada, family law, law firm. And in episode one, you meet his daughter from his first marriage, Abigail Bianchi, played by Jewel State, mm-hmm. who gets introduced into the family that is Jewel, my half-sibling, myself, and I have another younger half-sibling, Lucy, by another mother that Mr. Harry Spenson has had. So the three half-siblings are kind of forced to meet and interact and never really had relationships, all under the auspice of our dad, both as our father and as our boss in the law firm. So yeah. it kind of plays in that really strange dynamic of both those professional and personal worlds and navigating those relationships through that. You know, it often shifts from moment to moment within if we're you know, in an arbitration scene or a court scene being professionals with each other or not yeah. being professional, but in a professional setting, and then letting the, the sibling rivalry or the quirkiness of the dynamics of the bickering or trying to outcompete each other from you know, dad's attention, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. interspersed through all those scenes. So it's a fun show. And also, as any good law show touches on some important topics, and hopefully we created mm-hmm. in the first three seasons that we've done in Seas Abundance and CW, will connect to some of those storylines, the cases that people are presented with. I've said this before, and I think it's interesting because family law is a little different than like criminal law. Family law, I think the superpower of it is that the cases and the stories that we can get into are so relatable because a lot of people have gone through not always divorce, but they might have gone through an adoption. They might have gone through somebody going through a medical treatment. They might have gone through fighting over property or whatever those things might right. be. But they're just, they are so personal, especially the 10 episodes that we do in season one. There's bound to be a case or two that people are like, oh, yeah, I've been affected by that. Or I'm so interested in that. And I know people that I, that's a really pertinent conversation that's happening right now. And that really can showcase that. So that's the fun of the law part of the show for me. I think the show overall, like both in the characters and the dynamics between the the relationship, the family, there's so many things going on because like in real life, nothing is usually that straightforward, right? There's always these complicated relationships and underlying dynamics between siblings and families. And there is humor even during the worst times. Yeah. So it parallels life in many ways. It's not one thing. What's it like for you to be able to play in a space that has all of these components all sort of working very harmoniously? It's not just a straight drama, like you said. It's not just a procedural, like you said. It is all of these things sort of in this one great magical brew. 
it feels like a gift. <laughs> it is. It feels like an actor's gift. Like for the craft wise, it feels like a really great opportunity to be able to kind of play in all those worlds. Mm-hmm. Most shows don't do that. Most shows don't. Most shows don't. But it's also, it's a challenge because finding the right line mm-hmm. and navigating that from moment to moment, from story to story and episode to episode is also challenging yes. because you don't want to get caught in, you know, oh, we do some kind of quirky little funny moments and mm-hmm. that's a little thing. That, okay. But then every time something like comes up, you know, you don't want to dial up another degree and another right, degree right. and it becomes kind of almost a, a caricature of itself. I mean, you don't want to overplay your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And so really kind of going between those worlds and navigating and making very truthful laws, because this isn't like a sitcom, right. not to speak ill of sitcoms, no, no, no. but this isn't a sitcom. This isn't like something where there's a laugh track. This show, it tries to earn the laughter and the humor in the most sincere and honest way, depending on the personality. If it's Abigail Bianchi and her sense of humor versus Daniel Spencer, my character, his sense of humor, they're going to be different, but they both can lay it into each other, play a joke. Or kind of one-up each other in a real world that's not so amplified sometimes you seeing kind of classic TV comedies. It's so relatable in terms of the interpersonal relationships. Speaking of which, I need to get a little bit about your character, Daniel. You're the lead on the show. Yeah. Um, he is pretty type A. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. Just a little. Yeah, he is. Homeboy can use a vacation. Yeah, homeboy can use a lot of things. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your character. Daniel, as you said... He uh, he's pretty tightly wound. How I see him, he takes himself very seriously. Uh-huh. And he takes both his profession as a lawyer and his ranking in that law firm, his father being the head of the firm and right. being the only son and one of these half-siblings, plays an important part for him in his status and his stature uh-huh. amongst the siblings, but also in the, in the world of law. And he is somebody who I think those symbols are probably the more important to him, right. the status symbols, and having a sense of authority, and not in necessarily a vindictive way, but there's an enjoyment in having that power sure. that Daniel kind of has this little bit of a, uh, a glint in his eye for, mm-hmm. which is interesting to play. You said to me before, you know, he also doesn't seem to have a strong sense of being able to laugh at himself. Mm-hmm. He can easily laugh at others and mm-hmm. certain things, but he's a little, a little sensitive yeah. into being self-deprecating. He can sort of dish it out, but not really take it. <laughs> Can't quite take it, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, which is great. You know, okay. that's where yeah. some of the comedy and some of the moments for for myself are fun to play with. But for me, as Zach Smady, I don't take myself too seriously. I don't do cannons in the A street. lot of people do, Zach. Well, they do, but I think they're doing it wrong then because we joke on our show whether we're doing very intense emotional scenes or whether we're going and doing kind of a courtroom jargon scene or a family kind of dramatic moment. We're just here to have fun. Yeah. We're here to play. Yeah. That's the job. We have a saying on our show that like, if we're not having fun, we're doing it wrong. Exactly. And that's the attitude on our show because you have to be professional. You got to, you know, come and bring it. No, you have to bring it. But you can do those two things at once. A lot of people miss that memo. Yeah. The show itself, I think, really reflects a family in a really great way because it does have all of those complicated layers that exist in every family. Speaking of which, I do want to sort of dive in deeper now and kind of get to know your family and your background when you were growing up. Sure. Help me with the name of the city that you were. I'll give you like, you know, a hundred dollars if you could just pronounce it properly right off the bat. It's a hard one. It's a doozy. Sasquamish? Sasquamish? Oh, so close. Ah. 
Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Yes, okay. spelled like Saskatchewan, but we say Saskatchewan. Okay. Now you're over in Vancouver, but when you were growing up, because I know your mom was Irish and Austrian and your dad was Romanian, correct? Yeah. So what was it like for you growing up as a kid? What were some of the fundamental ideas and principles that your mom and your dad gave you? And it's the cornerstone of your person today. Yeah. Prairie people, and Saskatchewan knows the prairies, the prairie people are known to be pretty down to earth and pretty, a good sense of humor and a hard work ethic. That's obviously that comes like a lot of things comes with the terrain. Both my parents, their parents and grandparents on some sides were immigrants. They came from Europe. Saskatchewan wasn't formed as a province until like the early 1900s. So it was a homestead place. Like people had to break the land. Both my families come from farmer ilk. Those are our people. All my grandparents and my uncles and aunts, they all worked the land and farmed. Both my parents grew up on farms. My parents specifically, they grew up with a good sense of community because Saskatchewan has lots of small towns. It's mostly small little towns. So my parents were really grounded in their sense of community and family. My dad is the youngest of 13 born. Wait, my mom is the youngest, what? Or second youngest of five. 13? Yeah. yeah, 13 born. 13, like one, three. Yeah. Your grandma was pregnant all day. (laughs) All day. But it speaks to that time, right? Because to run a farm, you know, the family did it. It was a family farm. Yes. Like, okay, we need a couple more workers. Let's get out. (laughs) (laughs) We need somebody to help go feed the cows. Let's go. Hats off to your grandmother. I know. Eva, it's for you. God bless her. You were obviously very close to your family. Still am. You still are. Okay. We're going to get to that. When you were growing up, did you have anyone that you valued and looked to as mentors? Can you talk about the importance of having those people in your life? We were definitely influenced by our surroundings and the people around us. So those people that fill that space are important. For me, I was very lucky. As I said, my parents, my dad's a teacher by trade. My mom's a nurse by trade. And so we kind of have that, that sense of hard work and valuing of education and also compassion yeah. instilled in our family. I'd say my parents are both you know, my two first biggest friends, mentors, and continue to be. Specifically in school, I was really lucky to be, you know, the giant city that I'm from in Saskatchewan is not a big place. It's not really a, an arts kind of mecca. It's not like New York, but I was very fortunate when I was young. I was in grade five and my dad knew my energy, very energetic kid, quite loud, kind of all over the place. And my dad's a musician by trade as well. So, you know, we'd like to sing and dance around and stuff. And he saw that in me. And he put me forward for a, a young kid's theater production when I was 10. And I was like, can you give me an, a, a monologue? Can you, do you want to read this monologue? I'm like, what is it? Shakespeare. At 10? Yeah, it was 10. It was uh, all the world's the stage. Yeah, I know. My yeah. dad being the teacher here, I think mm, this is a little advanced for your age. But <laughs> You're amazing. I barely understood it in high school. <laughs> Most people, that's still the same thing. I, so I went to this audition for the Globe Theater, which is the, the only professional theater in Virginia, mm-hmm. and auditioned for it. And I didn't really know what to do, but I was just playing. And I, I'd gone to this summer program, mm-hmm. which... I did for two months and essentially you, you put on a show, you learn about all the stage and the costumes and you design the wardrobe. We did the show and it was great. There was this very young and very smart woman who moved to Saskatchewan and was starting a musical theater company for kids. And it was Andrew Lee Vinstrom. And she saw me in that show. And afterwards she came up and talked to me and said, I would love for you to come and join this company. 
And it's for kids from 10 to 18 years old to develop the foundational skills in theater and musical theater and dance. And I love them to do it. That moment there really started my journey into this profession, but it also was a gift of mentorship because Andrew Lee and then the other partner in the company is a man named Brock Person. I was just in Regina last week and I went and had breakfast with him just to see him again. You know, it's been 30 years or something since I've, you know, 29 years since I've known them and I still keep in close touch. They were two of the most foundational people in my, just my education in my life because that program, it's called Do It With Class not only just provided like an outlet for a young, wild kid like me, but also the community that it formed. There was lots of similar children in the same program. Most of those people are still continue to be my best friends. So it's like a pool of just yeah. really authentic, beautiful, fun people. That's so great. But also the training and the experience that we got, we would put on two big musicals a year. Plus they're doing dance class three or four times a week. I did ballet and studied modern. We did pas de deux partnering. All these things that we normally get, even in big cities, unless they were quite elite or also you had a lot of money. You never had either of those things. But Rob and Anderley provided this program that just changed the lives of so many people. There's a huge list of people who started with Do With Class that have gone on to be nominated for Tonys and on Broadway. We're in the Marvel universe and big, you know, superstars. They all come from Regina and in the same program. So that was really the start for me in these teachers that valued their students. But that gave me a superpower in wanting to learn and wanting to be better at something, actually valuing the education that I was getting. And it transferred this fun musical theater world of learning lines and singing songs and all that stuff into my actual schooling. Because I was, I didn't realized this until much later, but I had a learning disability when I was growing up. So in elementary school, I would go off to like extra help. And I just remember thinking back on a couple of years ago, wow, I had learning assistance. I would leave the classroom at certain times, work on one-on-one with a specific teacher to work on different math skills and English skills and all that stuff. Right. All my difficulties started to go away just as I was really kind of coming into my own with the class when I entered into high school. And so Robert and Andrew Lee were kind of the catalyst for that and opening up for me. And then getting into high school, I just had these wonderful teachers. There was this amazing woman named uh, Madame Nishnik, who's a math teacher. For most people, math is not like exciting. For some people, math is exciting, but most people not. Do you like, do you like math? I don't know. I failed math twice. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm working in television, Zach. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I use a calculator and an app. Yeah. But like, what a great name. <laughs> what was your teacher's name? Madame what? Madame Nishnik. She helped you out a lot. Just speaking of the power of teachers, though, she, first of all, helped me a lot because I was not great at math in elementary school. I wasn't good in a lot of the subjects. And then going into high school with this kind of added energy and sense of confidence in myself, Madame Nishnik, for instance, made math so fun and easy and accessible that I went from being kind of like passing to a 97, 98 percentile wow. math student for my entire high school. Amazing. I just, right. I get it. I get it. Okay, factory list, blah, blah, blah. And it's just the way in which she taught and cared for the students. You know, it's people like that, that I still think on and reflect on that. I'm very fortunate. That's amazing. To have had in my life. That's amazing. But not even just for the specific skills, but for the things that kind of have fostered other skills and abilities in me. Okay, Madame Nishnik, can you send her over? Because I'm still trying to figure out, like, addition. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you have her come over and help me balance my checkbook, that would be amazing. 
You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. But like all kidding aside, to have these amazing people and teachers that help shape you and give you a gift of interest and in learning and confidence, you know, it goes beyond the technical things that they're teaching, right? It's not just about like the Pythagorean theorem, which I can't even believe I just said it. I can't believe you said that either. Now I know if you're able to make addition. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that is the only mathematical term I know. Well done. It goes beyond what they're actually teaching in terms of the subject, whatever the subject may be. The confidence and the love of learning and, you know, having this harnessed is incredible to have you go from, you know, not enjoying math to such a high grade. Going back to the programs that these two people set up for you really made you the person who you are. It's the reason why you're in the business that you're in, because they nurtured your talent. And I think one of the shame, unfortunately, that's happening is a lot of teachers are not getting the support and recognition that they deserve. Yeah. I think teachers in general need a lot more support. So from your perspective, what can we do to acknowledge and have them feel more supported? That's a difficult question. My brother's a high school teacher, mm -hmm. so I can speak a little bit just from hearing through his, his experience. I think partly teachers and nurses and all those people, they should be paid a lot more. I yeah. think it would just be supportive of them. The work that they do outside, especially teaching, the work that you do outside of like the eight to three or nine to four or whatever it is, right. they're doing work nonstop. At least from what I've seen is that I think we put too much on teachers now to do too many other things besides teach. Outside of the classroom and outside of what they can do within that, a lot of other issues that a lot of children face in from every city and every, every province and state that comes into the classroom. And mm. it kind of is the foundational stuff. I was fortunate to come from a very good home and right. two loving parents that were really supportive. And even though they come from humble beginnings, no matter what, if I do with class, it was a priority for me. They would make it work to make sure that I could, you know, do that program and have an outlet and have other things. So when I went back to the classroom, I was supported so many different ways. Right. 
Unfortunately, if there's communities and places that people don't have that, that the school is the only outlet, well, then teachers are bombarded with right. everything that every child is possibly facing if they don't have their supports outside. Yeah. And so they become social workers, they become secondary parents, they Therapists. become nurses, they yeah. become therapists, all the things that they children need to really flourish. Yeah. A lot of schools and a lot of teachers have, have had to take on. Yeah. I do think overall that the teachers do need to be paid more and have more support. Your experience and your sharing it sort of underlines the truly superheroes that they are and they can be. And as a society, I think overall we need to sort of really recognize and build a support system around those superheroes so they can be allowed to do what they're supposed to do so people can flourish the yeah. way you did, Zach. Madame Nishnik, for instance, like shaped my life in the sense of I remember going into grade 12, or the final year of high school, picking classes. And she's like, Zach, you, you're going to do this like acting thing, right? You're going to university for acting. Right? She's like, yeah. She's like, you don't need to take calculus. Don't take calculus. I was like, well, I like, I love, I love being in your class. She's like, you don't, you will not need calculus. The kids that are going on to engineering or whatever, they need that. Right. You should take another English class because yeah. you should study more Shakespeare more. I'm like, okay. Like it's things like that. She's like, she wants to do that. And honestly, you know, the extra English class that I took and studying Hamlet and all that stuff has paid off way more than, than that, than maybe taking calculus. Zach, honestly, I just met you, but like, why would you want to sign up for calculus even with <laughs> Madame Nishnik? That's true. Like, bake her yeah, a pie and take her out to dinner. <laughs> Don't take another calculus yeah. class. What are you, insane? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very, very true. <laughs> I think the other thing that you had mentioned was the kids are sort of bearing the brunt of a lot of the societal issues that don't have the support. And it really does come down to the family. And as you said, you were very lucky um, to have a close-knit family. Can you talk a little bit about your family and some of the hardships and challenges that you have had to face and a lesson that you have learned through those challenges? Yeah. I would say my family is, has been and continues to be the most kind of influential factor in my life. All the ups and downs that come with that, you, you bear and you utilize and either it wears you down or it lifts you up. And it doesn't matter whether it's something that's positive or negative, right? Those yeah. things can affect you either way. My father, George, right. is, uh, as I said, was a teacher and a you know, farm boy musician. He's had some health issues in the last 12 years that really changed him affected the course of our, our family's life. 2006, he had a heart attack, and that was kind of a shock to the family. And luckily, it wasn't extremely severe in a triple bypass, but that time, those things used to end people's lives. We're in the 20th, 21st century at this point. Things are okay, so we survived that. But 2011, my dad got diagnosed with esophageal cancer, cancer of the esophagus. Luckily, the medical team in Saskatchewan was great and they caught it fairly early. He was able to have surgery, so they removed his esophagus completely. It was it's a very serious surgery, right? It's, it's quite invasive. And that was quite a shock. Yeah. I was in Toronto. I got a call from my mom saying, uh, your, dad, your dad went to the doctor and this is kind of what's happening. And I was like, oh. And, you know, I'd obviously... I've heard people having cancer and sure. we've had cousins and relatives and my, some of my grandparents have cancer. What was it like somebody within that immediate circle that so, so close? Yeah. And I remember just kind of takes the wind out and go, okay. You know, obviously my mom from the nursing background, mm -hmm. there's this real sense of calm and compassion that it was probably a gift to all of us because her partner was 
I'm not even sure at that time, but they've been together. They've been married for 45 years at this point. So some of the people that. Oh, God bless. To be in a position like that and be you know, somewhat scared. My mom's so practical and very level-headed and supportive. And I was, okay, so what are I going to do? She said, I think you should come home. I think you should fly home. Well, I think you should be here a little bit because we don't quite know what's going on. This is the steps that we're going to be taking. Right. It was really important that I was there. It's just scary for everybody because you don't yeah. know what's going to happen in the outcome. Luckily, my dad survived that and was in remission for five years. But unfortunately, we're just about to celebrate that five years. And then my dad surprisingly and unexpectedly was diagnosed with leukemia, myeloid acute oh, leukemia, which is cancer of the blood and bone marrow. That happened even faster, even quicker, and a real shock. I remember, this is five years later, since 2016, mm-hmm. we kind of just get in the mode of like, here, we're celebrating, we're like kind of happy that people are good and healthy. And then this comes out of nowhere, and it was not a good prognosis. My dad's, uh, because of complicating factors, because of his heart that he right. had, the heart attack and other things, the standard procedure of the surgeries and the chemo that they would do wasn't an option. Right. And I remember flying home and sitting in the hospital room and kind of half expecting the, the medical team to be, okay, no, we're going to walk in and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do X, Y, and Z, and this is how we know that. And I remember the doctor coming in the first couple of days and said, you don't have an option for you. And I remember just took the air out of the room. My brother and my sister were both there, and my mom and my dad. What do you mean? What, you can't do anything? And it wasn't to their fault. They just explained it. You know, your father's heart isn't strong enough to do this right. and this and this. And he wasn't going to be able to tolerate it. Yeah. And they go through that. The medical team was great, but they said the cure might be worse than the disease. But it was probably one of the most difficult times of my life. First of all, my dad had to accept that diagnosis mm-hmm. and accept the inevitable state of like, okay, I guess there's nothing we to do. What does that mean? How long do it pass? Right. How do we continue to live? And my mom being the superstar that she is, is and the biggest caregiver, she's nurse number one and, and champion. She's like, well, whatever happens, you're going to continue to live. You're not going to sit here and die. We're not going to sit here and just have them die. It's a mindset. I mean, we were all very emotional. I didn't sleep for, for days and weeks. Right. I was home for a long time. I had just finished, and it's funny how these things influence because I just finished probably the biggest project of my career just before that. I'd finished a movie called Miss Sloan. I was working with Jessica Chastain and Mark Strong and all these yeah. amazing people. I was like, this is amazing. It was probably two or three weeks after we wrapped and I get the call. Oh, I might be saying goodbye to my dad. It's just funny how the universe works like that. And it gave me a lot of perspective of what do you value and what is a priority to you? Because as that initial diagnosis that my dad was, I was like, I'm staying home. I'm, being, I'm here for every moment that I can soak up with it. Right. You know, I remember my team and other people were like, well, you know, there's this project with this thing. That I just, I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to do that. Right. It was just such a good lesson for me to show myself that like, no, I can choose the things that actually are the most important to me. Now, long story short, my dad was luckily the team his medical team was amazing and they were, they, they just didn't make sense to them. He, this man was walking like a hundred miles a month with his wife every day and didn't have a strong enough heart to do something. Luckily, some communication with his doctors in Vagina and the Vancouver Cancer Clinic. and They just, you know, the, these, the beauty of science and the beauty of the medical establishment that people who actually care and can solve problems will do so if they have the resources. Right. And they did. And they came back 
I remember getting the phone call. My dad was home. We brought him home to palliative care. So since she's there just to rest and be comfortable and not be in as much pain as right. soon as possible. And they called and said, we think we might have an option. We want to use a couple older techniques of these different chemotherapies along with another thing. We think you kind of a multifaceted thing. And if you're up for it, we think we might be able to make a difference and impact in this. And so we had our little family meeting again. Are you ready to fight? This is going to be hard. Going to cancer treatment, I'm sure as you know, or, and other people know, it's not easy. It's a really, really difficult thing, physically, mentally, emotionally. Yeah, it's probably the most strenuous and punishing thing on every level, like for the families physically, yeah. for the patient certainly, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, because you're just completely strung out with caregiving and shuttling them down to doctors and things like that. Cancer has touched everyone in some way. And when it devastates your family and it hits that close, it literally redefines your entire baseline, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right on that. It did for us. And I think, you know, the next part of that story is the resilience part that we all learned and experienced from my dad's situation because we then spent the next 104 days in the hospital going through all the different treatments, all the different bouts, all the different ups and downs, as you know. And our family, as I said, we're very close. Somebody was there with him every single day and every single night. Yeah. We did shifts and turns. My mom was there every single night for this 104 days. She slept there every night. We would go and take turns in the daytime to keep my dad company and yeah. bring him food and all that. Exercise him like, okay, dad, you think you can do four push-ups against the wall? Yeah. Let's do it. Come on. We got to keep those muscles going, you know? I can't do four push-ups against the wall now. <laughs> well, I'm but, not even playing yeah, right now. You need a little smaidu uh, plan treatment. We'll get you there. Come on over. <laughs> but how is your dad now? He's... Great. He's been in remission now since 2016, since, well, 2017. So, knock on wood, yeah. we always do. He's just as vibrant and excited as ever now. He has a couple grandkids. I, I have a niece and a nephew. That kind of has given an extra gear to him and my mom and stuff, which is just great to see. So, he's doing very well. Good. That makes me so happy to hear. I do need to ask you, when you're in that war... I mean, when you're fighting cancer and going through cancer treatment, it is a war. There's yeah. no two ways about it. It is a brutal process. I'm sure you had fear and stress. How can you not? You know, someone you love and your father who's so close. Yeah. When you are going through and you're sitting in the hospital by your dad yeah. in those moments of 104 days, right? Tell me a moment that you had where you looked around and it really cemented what was most important to you in your life? Not that you ever questioned it, your family and understanding the priorities in this world. It sort of really renewed your commitment to what was important in your life. Yeah, that's such a great question, actually. And I had never really thought about if there was a specific moment, but now I can see that there actually is. It comes back to, this is partly my family and that strange mentality of, of <laughs> ever optimism and uh, encouragement and resilience to, to wanting to fight and do the hard work. But I actually don't know who started it. I can't remember if it was my mom or it might have been my sister, Talitha. As we started this journey, we're going to start the chemo process. We don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know where it's going to take us. But somebody brought in a book for all of us, a blank, a blank book that we call our gratitude book. Everybody and anybody who came in, especially my dad and never left that room, could put something in that book that they were grateful for. Nothing too small, nothing too big. 
at the point where I like me look back and sort of look into it. You see, you know, the weeks and the months. You see my brother, my brother-in-law's message of who's very grateful that he got to share A and W with George today. And my mom's really grateful that dad had a solid six hours of sleep. Yeah. And all these little things that people would put in. My brother, I'm grateful I'm going to watch the Blue Jays baseball game with dad today. My sister, I'm, I'm grateful that I got to read a book with that. All those little moments, those things that seem pedestrian, often mm-hmm. their own lines, those things that just the things that make up your life. Yeah. Just the things that you do in about. most days of your entire life that you don't think about. Yeah. And looking through those pages and reflecting on that, I remember going, I've never valued these specific things so much in my life. I've never even noticed them to that degree. That's a clear shift in my personal perspective. Because as you said, there was no hesitation in my mind of where I'd want to be. Right. There, there was no doubt I would rather spend every moment with my dad and my family right. during this time than working on another show or another project. Of course. It never crossed my mind. But that tangible book was the thing that really kind of changed my perspective in so much of how I just like live my normal life now post the cancer treatment. Yeah. And how I interact with my friends and my family and especially bringing that back to Toronto why I eventually came back and just spending time with my friends and really being, you know, it's a cliche thing to say being present. Like what does present actually mean? Present yeah. means if you're going to wash the dishes, I'm going to sit there, I'm going to wash the dishes. Now, if I have a friend coming over for coffee, we're going to go eat somewhere, you know, I'm not going to have my phone on the set. Like all these yeah. little things. I haven't seen you in six months because I've been away. Let's just sit and talk. I feel very blessed because I feel, you know, I'm not perfect at it, but that has changed a lot of who I am in really trying to embrace whatever the situation is, whether you're sitting in traffic or on a flight for six hours or whatever you're doing, going, this is all you got. You get one of these. Yeah. It's strange to bring full circle because as you started the, the question about those things that impact you, no one wishes to go through a cancer treatment with family, let alone your yeah. deal, but whatever the outcomes it changes you and it can change you for the better or the worse. The interesting thing is that you have a choice in it. Part of it is perspective. Part of it is how you reflect on it and rebound and learn those lessons that you can from it because there's plenty of lessons in that. Yeah. I think there's so many things that we just go through day to day that we don't even think about that we take for granted. You know, not to be a cornball, but like really taking the time to smell the roses and appreciating the everyday things. It's interesting that when you go through something that is so life-threatening with someone that you love, you're right. It is a choice in what you can salvage from that as a lesson that can be positive, despite how I'm sure painful and exhausting that whole experience is. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to hear that your dad is doing well. And your mom, I mean, my God, she's a hero in every way. Something like that, you cannot get through without a strong support system. It is everything. It is truly a lifeline. And I'm grateful that you guys had each other. Where's the book actually now? Oh, my my parents have it. How did it reframe how you live your life today? Every conversation I have with my family now is important to me, whether it's five minutes because I'm running out the door to whatever, or we have an hour FaceTime conversation. I chat with my family pretty much every day if we can, if we can manage it. That's great. Even if it's just a quick, you know, we're all having coffee in the morning. Okay, what are you, Kate? Okay, what's going on? Like, 
it's made me just value that and also really wanting to spend the time. It made me think of being in Toronto and my parents are in Saskatchewan. So it's a three and a half hour flight. And in that moment of crisis, you know, I flew home and I was there and that, but it made me do the arithmetic on going, okay, say I see my parents twice a year. Mm-hmm. Say I see them at Christmas and sometime in the cemetery. Let's do the arithmetic. They're this age. Well, if I see them twice a year, say my parents live for an idiot, you know, my dad, it's, it sounds morbid to say, but you have these thoughts like, okay, if I only can see them and my dad lives for maybe he's lucky for another five years, well, I see my dad 10 more times. I didn't think like that beforehand because you just, maybe it's night to youth and all that. But when something like that happens, you know, oh, right. Okay. I have to make the effort. And also they're going to make the effort. You know, my parents came out to visit me and I'll come back to Saskatchewan to visit my brother. And sit. It just became a thing. Any opportunity to be 10, we're going to spend time with each other. Yeah. In general, society tells us certain benchmarks that we should have in this world, right? We need to own a house at certain points. We need to have a family. And this is important to talk about now. You went through this horrible experience, but I feel like it has really sort of refocused you. Not that you weren't focused before, but really sort of renewed your commitment to what was important and always sort of be there. And I think the other thing that's really great is you know, our business is a lot of smoke and mirrors. Sometimes it's a lot of just like, you know, stuff and... Lots of noise. Yeah, noise. When you go through something like this, you really realize like how precious time is and what yeah. really is important to you. It's just how you should treat your attention. What are you paying attention to? Well, you can choose good things to put attention to. Or you can pay attention to a lot of shit that's going to be distracting. when I mean, you can make a choice. Right. How do you value the energy and the time that you put into those relationships. That's, that's what's important. And you can do multiple things at one time, but you need kind of a guided principle for that. And one of those for me is, okay, well, my family's, family's very important and my friends and my loved ones in my, in, in my relationships in my life. That's important. And I can make other decisions around that. It's possible. It's not always easy, but it's possible. It's never easy. But here's the thing that I also think is really wonderful that I, I, I'm actually trying to do as well. Being present is so hard to do sometimes because there's so much stimulus that's like constantly being thrown at you. Yeah. So for me, when I'm actually having dinner or even this conversation, like I'm really like tuned in and I'm making sure that I'm like looking at you or listening to you. I know that this opportunity is rare. Moments are fleeting, right? And the fact that you're sharing your story, like I actually want to hear it and I want to not be like just yesing you to death. Isn't it nice to actually sit and communicate with somebody? Yeah. Sadly, I think it's so rare in our culture kind of now, which is weird, that people just don't sit down. You know, we're distracted to death with the little things. I don't want to get over the tangent about technology and stuff, but like, yeah, you should be very cautious of what you put in your brain and your hands because if you spend six hours a day scrolling, you know, I know people often who spend six hours a day like just scrolling through stuff. And then there are the people that are like, well, I don't have time to, to do this. I don't have time to pursue music. I don't have time to, you know, go to the gym. I don't have to, whatever the things that might be that they, right. they say they want to do, that they themselves, they're like, you're telling you, I'm saying to me, I want to go do this, but I don't have time. You know, you have time. You just have to choose wisely about, where you're wasted yeah. because it's so easy to waste time and it happens to the best of us i'll be like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go send that message about something and then you go and i'm checking my emails and you're like, oh, it's like 21 said like, what was i doing yeah <laughs> exactly yeah you, you, you're fighting yourself for attention like oh wait a minute oh yeah 
I think that being present to me is so important. Like if I'm actually going to have a conversation with someone, I want to be as present as humanly possible because it's like time shared with someone, especially experiences, there has to be a level of trust there. You're trusting me with your time. You're trusting me with your story and experiences. And I want to really respect that. So, you know, I don't want my mind to wander. I want to be able to just focus on you and respect that trust. Like you said, it's the moments that, that you don't think about are the moments that are the most precious, you know? So I think, yeah, I think for me, that's like a big, big life lesson when you go through something that hard and I try to live this way. Now, after everything that you've gone through, I don't think anybody would ever fault you to just, you know, go on with your life and not look back, but you and your family still make a point of giving back and giving back to charity. Why is that important to you? And what kind of things are you involved with? Well, it's important to me because I have been very fortunate. My family's been very fortunate to reap the benefits of what other people have done to support these, you know, for us, specifically it's cancer initiatives. My dad is here because of all the, the thousands of people that have gone before him right. and gone through the systems and had the experimental things, had the money and the funding to be able to support the healthcare system in doing that. So for us, reaping the benefits of that specifically is not only just a willingness to do, but it's a duty. We have to move this forward and also be advocates for why it is important. I'm lucky to say my dad's sitting around, but there's a lot of people that, that are. My family, a lot of us get blood. I'm one of those people that I like getting up at like five or six in the morning and like doing double workouts and hitting the gym and going around mm -hmm. and swimming and stuff. And I've tied that interest with the cancer stuff. So I've done a, a couple of different marathons and raised money for, you know, I, I ran the the London Marathon just after my dad went through his leukemia and big bout there. I was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to raise as much money as I can. I think it was like five or 6,000 pounds that I raised flying over to the UK to run for cancer at Cherish. Yeah. And it's a good vehicle to get awareness for, for that. And so I continue to do that and when I can. If I were to ask you to put an entry in that book, the, the gratitude book, yeah. what would that entry say at this point? Wow. The problem is there are so many things I would be grateful for that I could just list off in heartbeat. I don't know if there is a top thing. No, I'm grateful for the fact that I have a niece, Finley, who's three years old, and nephew now, Haven, who's just turned two, and seeing my parents and grandparents. Because when we were going through cancer, you know, well, that was one of the things that my dad wrote that one of his regrets is that he, did, he never got to hold his grandkids. Because no, none of us had kids at that time. Squaring that circle now, going, that's like the best gift I get to see all the time. I was just home for a week and got to see them. And the joy that, that my parents experience and obviously my siblings experience with the little ones, like that's a gift that I never thought. I'm so thankful for. Yeah. So present when I'm there, that I get to be Uncle Zach with everybody there. It's one of the special gifts in us. Yeah. So I'm very grateful for that. Just to underline something, and I'm always going to keep this in mind, truly, is the idea of choice. Despite the hardships and how punishingly brutal that experience is, you chose to learn from it and you chose to get positive lessons that have made your life better. And I think that in a world that's moving so fast, it's easy to lose sight of what's important and make sure you make time for those things that are important. Yeah. I'm always going to remember, like, we have to exercise choice, even at the worst of times. Yeah. So I think that's a really universal lesson that can be applicable regardless of whether or not you're fighting a deadly disease or not. 
I'm going to ask you to sign us off, Zach. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Zach Smiggins, and I represent tenacious drive and a sense of family. Thanks to Zach Smedu for hanging out. You can catch him on CW's Family Law. And I know you're going to want to follow Zach, so I'll have all of his links for you in the episode description. Now check out the next episode of Reppin, where I'll share some of my thoughts and takeaways from my conversation with Zach. And that's where you're going to find out who's coming up next. Every episode of Reppin is available for download. So go get them. And please subscribe and share. And I'd love for you to leave a review wherever you're listening. Let me know your thoughts and you can share them with me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast or on the gram. My handle there is Reppin underscore podcast. Thank you to Nelson Pinero for his time, talent, and care. Always love to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.